Mă vrem de persoană? Um, the two basic questions I always get when people find out I'm a pastor, um, which is extraordinary how many people are quite surprised when they see me and they say, you're a pastor? That, that actually is one question. <laughs> um, it's almost like they need to look at me and go, really? Um, bouncer, maybe? No. Um, Yeah, no, pastor. Yeah. Um, well, bouncers still care for people, don't they? Um, <laughs> so the two questions I normally get are, first of all, what do you do? Like, as a pastor, like, what do you do? And I've got to be honest, I'm starting to question what it is that I do. Um, you know, I, 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 when I first signed up to be a pastor about 20-plus years ago, I think it was about 23 years ago, um, is very different to what it means to be a pastor today. Um, and, and that's changed. And so I've, I've always struggled with how to respond to that. I, I think one of this is what I do now is, is a key part of what I do in general. Uh, but there are just so many expectations from people that it's hard to kind of pinpoint uh, what it is that people really want me to do. Uh, if I look at my job description, it's far more than just 40 hours a week. So, you know, I kind of wrestle with that. But the second question that I'm faced with is do you really believe like that the bible is like real like true and and it's it's it usually comes after that talk around you know what it is i do and then i'm faced with the question of how do i respond to someone who just doesn't believe in the bible and they look at me incredulously because you know uh, just recently this past week one person that I, i've gotten to know quite well in our community he's quite an intelligent man He's like, Rob, you're smart. How can you believe in this Bible thing? Like, come on, historically, really? And I'm like, yeah, you see, I don't think the Bible was really meant to be a book about history. But well, what is it about? It's a book about humanity and our relationship with the divine, with God. And he kind of looked at me like as if it was some sort of revelation. And I said, it is. It's amazing how you can read this book that's 2,000 years old And humans are just humans. Sure, the context is different. Sure, it's like uh, culturally, it's a culture that maybe most of us can't really relate with. But the stories are so very human. And I tell him, every Sunday I can preach. And there isn't a story in the Bible that I can pull out that wouldn't be valid and relevant and, and applicable to us today. It's just amazing. And that's why I can look at it and say, this is God-inspired. It's just so very real in its brokenness, in its honesty. And you could see God as this parent trying to deal with people. And if you're a parent, you can almost relate to him so well. And so well. And when coast like that, this guy looked at me, he goes, you know what, I'm going to go read this Bible. I said, stop, hang on a sec, don't read from the beginning, right? <laughs> I said, actually, you know, Genesis is really good because that's really the story of a very dysfunctional family, right? You, you can relate to that. But then after that, it kind of gets really heavy. And he, I said, just, just read with Gospels. Start with Matthew or with John or with Mark if you want something quicker and more fast-paced. Luke, if you want something a little bit more analytical. He goes, I'll do that. And I said, don't read it from a historical point of view, read it from a humanity point of view. 
Think of it as humans interacting with God. He goes, oh, no one's ever said that to me before. I've always struggled with it because I struggle with, you know, the historical value of it. But maybe this is something, I'll, and that's what he's done. He's going to, hopefully, I'll see him next week. Um, but this morning's story is a classic example of a story that's just kind of lost in one of those books that most of us haven't, most probably read once and haven't gone back to again. But it's a story that's so important, so valid for us today. And it begins with these people, these people called the Philistines. Now, these Philistines are an incredible people, but there's three things. If you ask Christians, uh, you know, what, what are Philistines about? Um, first of all, they say they're the sense of the people living in Gaza today because that strip of Gaza at the moment, that's where the Philistines lived and battled with the Israelites. And so some people have made that connection. Um, others say that they are uncultured, uncouth. In fact, to be a Philistine is, is an adjective today to say that you are a, you're a barbarian, right? And, and, and another thing is that they're obviously, if you read the Old Testament, they're a major enemy uh, of Israelites. Um, David faced Goliath. We all know that story. Well, only one of those lines is actually true, and that's that last one. Um, the Philistines are actually an extinct people. Um, they were, uh, if you want to read about the apocalypse of the end of the Bronze Age, uh, there was this uh, point in time where the world turned upside down. And even today, scientists can't figure out what went wrong. Uh, archaeologists can't figure out what happened. And historians argue and debate over how the Bronze Age actually ended. But it was almost like an apocalypse. Several empires disappeared. The Minoans, the Hittites, uh, other ones just completely went into reverse, like the Mycenaeans and the Egyptians. A lot of these things happened all at the same time. Anyone been, or anyone seen those wonderful photos of Greece, the Greek islands, and you see Santorini? Well, Santorini was uh, actually an earthquake, uh, not an earthquake, sorry, a volcano that exploded right at the end of the Bronze Age. There's a big caldera there, kind of like uh, Lake Topol. And it happened in that period of time. Other things happened, famines, wars. No one really can put their finger on it. But something came out of this, and it was these sea peoples. The Egyptians are the first to write about it. And, and the historians think it was the Philistines, who were these sea peoples who raided the coastlines along the Mediterranean and ended up landing in uh, what is modern-day Gaza today. And these guys kind of took upon the next stage, which we know as the Iron Age. And they started using proper iron weapons rather than the bronze ones that were being used before. And they were really, really good at, um, at, at, uh, at blacksmithing, at making these weapons. In fact, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 13, they are making weapons for the Israelites. Like if you have to sharpen your tools, you had to go to the Philistines to get it sharpened because only they could do it. So they weren't uncultured. They weren't uncouth. They were actually quite a resourceful people. But with the raids of the Babylonians around 600 BC, they disappeared. Um, we don't hear from them ever again. Uh, it's thought that the Babylonians wiped them out. Um, but these people were a real thorn in Israel's side, or vice versa, I think. They just, neither of them liked each other. The Philistines were, according to the Israelites, a very ungodly people. 
they did have some very crude, ancient uh, rites to their gods that we today would find quite offensive. Uh, their primary god, Dagon in particular, not, not the nicest of gods in the ancient world. And so they, there was this, the battles that went on. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Israelites go out to battle against the Philistines and they lose. And they can't figure out why they lost. Why did we lose? And we pick up the story here from 1 Samuel chapter 4. It says this, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. You know, they just kind of sat there and thought, why did we lose? Hey, hang on a second. We've got God in a box. Let's go get him and let's put him out front so that we can win this battle. So they give Eli a call and they say, Eli, who's the, you know, chief priest, you know, over in Shiloh. Hey, dude, we need God. Um, yep, no problem, guys. I'll get my, my sons to come out and bring you, uh, bring you God in a box. Now, God in a box was literally God in a box. Um, they called it the Ark of the Covenant. And um, anyone seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, Indiana Jones. Uh, the, bo the box was made of acacia wood. Uh, overlaid with gold, and it contained three items, the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's old staff. Now, it was said that between the two angels, God sat, his presence existed. That's where he was present here on earth. In fact, there are stories where, you know, uh, the Israelites are carrying, or the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, it slips and one of the soldiers goes down to stop it from falling and he dies instantly because he touches the box. So there is this thought in the Israelites that oh, this is the presence of God. So let's head out and do battle, right? Let's take our, our God out with us and let's go win this battle. But they go out and they don't win. They lose horribly. Now, good old uh, Eli, he's waiting back at Shiloh on a seat out the front of the city gates, waiting to hear news about the battle. And one of the runners comes coming back, and he can see him from a distance as the guy's running up. And he comes up to Eli, and he says, Eli, Eli, it was so bad, we had to run away. What do you mean you had to run away? It was just so bad. Really? Yeah, it was so bad. We really suffered bad losses. It was that bad a fight. It was horrible. And you know what? Both your sons were killed. What? Both my sons were killed? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, the Philistines took our God in a box. At the news, Eli literally falls out of his chair dead. That's how bad the news was for him. He just went, boom. Heart attack, whatever it was, aneurysm, boom, he's gone. In that same moment, his daughter-in-law who's pregnant, goes into labor. And, and she's dying as she's giving birth prematurely. And the maidservant there is saying, don't worry, you have a son. And she says, oh, 
I've lost my husband today. I've lost my father-in-law today. We've lost our God in the box today. So the son is born and her last act before she dies is naming her son and she names him Ichabod. Now, if you were here last week, you can see how these people name their kids. I mean, last week it was actually God who told Hosea to name his kids. But these poor kids are left with these names. Um, Ichabod, this poor kid, is going to have a name that will remind him forever of the day he was born. The E means no, not gone. And Chabod means the presence of God's glory. Basically, this is what happened. The glory of the presence of God has left. Sam, how would you love to have a name like that, huh? Every day you're reminded of the presence of God has left the building. He is not here. And that is the problem with naming your kid after. This poor guy is going to live with this name for the rest of his life. Ichabod. But here's the thing. I mean, God let himself be captured. In this moment, God allowed himself to be held by these heathens. The last time someone tried to touch the box, was killed outright. And he was just trying to stop it from falling. Here you have these people who aren't his people carrying off the ark, the seat of God. And not only that, they're taunting him the whole way. (laughs) Couldn't save your own people, you can't even save yourself. What kind of a God are you? He takes on the humiliation, the embarrassment of his people, the shame. He carries that. Now, they're all hiding back home, wondering where God is. And God is actually carrying their shame. He's carrying their embarrassment. He's taking the full weight of it. Day one, uh, all is lost. Day one, just looks pretty miserable. They've lost everything. It's a dark, sad day. The Philistines take the ark, they place it at the feet of their own god, Dagon, in the temple in Ashdod. And there they go off and feast and have a good old time because they've defeated their enemies. They've defeated the god of their enemies. Next morning, day two, Uh, It's a bit strange because when they go into the temple, they find Dagon tipped over in front of the ark. What's going on here? What's happening? What's this about? Oh, well, maybe a bit of an earthquake or something. Let's put poor old Dagon back upright and let's go eat again and be merry for we've defeated the God of our enemies. Then day three comes. Day three is day of the Lord. Not only is Dagon on the floor, but both his arms and his head are severed. And then something happens to the Philistines. 
says it in 1 Samuel 5, 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. I love Bible translators. They are so prudish. The word is not tumors. It just sounds better. It's hemorrhoids. Yeah. Just think of the irony of a people who are expert metal makers, sharp swords and knives, and all they really need is a soft pillow. These guys are afflicted with it, and they don't know what to do. So they decide, the people of Ashdod, let's move the ark on and let the rest of the Philistines enjoy our victory. We'll move it on to Gath. And so Gath takes the Ark of the Covenant, and next thing you know, they're all looking for soft pillows. And Gath is like, we don't want this here anymore. Let's move it on to Ekron. Yeah, yeah, Ekron can have this. Ekron is smart enough. They shut the doors. We don't want this thing. And so the Philistine leaders all get together, and they think, what do we do? We're all in a bit of pain here. (laughs) What do we do with this thing? We've made this God angry. (laughs) How do we deal with this? Well, here's what we'll do. We'll make five golden hemorrhoids. I I have no idea what that's going to look like, nor do I want to know what that looks like. And then five golden mice. We're going to put it in a cart along with the Ark of the Covenant. We'll put it in a cart. We'll get two milking cows who who have been carving, who've got calves, who have never been hitched up to a, to a, a, a cart before. We'll separate them from their calves. We'll put them on there and we'll just send it on its way and see where it goes. If this God is for real, then he'll take it back to his land. I mean, it's a smart plan, right? They trust that if this God is real, he's going to take his thing back and leave us alone. And And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn right or left. They didn't go back to their calves. They didn't go anywhere. They went straight to where they needed to go. And the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Whew. What a story. God in a box. Anyone read that story before? You you might have just passed it and thought, oh, that's an interesting story. And then moved on. But it's, it's foundational, actually, in our faith walk. God in a box. The Israelites thought that they could manipulate, control, almost treat God like a personal genie. Hey, we're losing the war here. Let's pull out the box. Let's throw it up front there. We're going to win this now. And the question I want to challenge you with you all this morning is, how do we do that today? How many of us here today love to pull out our God in the box? You know, it's fascinating. As a pastor, I struggle. And why I struggle with trying to figure out what it is that I do now is because I tend to sit like right here. And on this side, you've got all the grace-loving people, all the, um, you know, people on this side. And on that side, you've got all the law-loving people, Right? And there's a reason why we pastors end up getting burnt out because like Jesus on a cross sometimes, it's hard to reach out either way and pull them in. Because people on this side have their God box. Let people be people. God made us the way we are. And you've got people on this side who keep telling me, no, 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 no. There's a reason why Jesus died. 
because you aren't good and you're going to hell. <laughs> and, and we passed the city going, yeah, you're right, yeah, you're right. How do I get you guys to meet? And part of the problem is we're just too attached to our box. An interesting discussion this week about what accountability was or is. What does it mean? How do we hold each other accountable? That's a good question. And some of us just like to say, let, let, let everyone do their thing. It's a conversation. Over here, no, no, no. You need to tell them what to do. It's a rule. And we stand in the middle, fighting with people's boxes. We do this to control, manipulate, throw him out in our box to get what we want. Job 11, and of all the people that just couldn't understand what God was doing, and while his friends were trying to put God in a box, trying to give him some petty responses to the, the pain and suffering that he was feeling, he says this, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? The high, they are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? And in response to his friends who keep telling him, I think they're more on this side, you've sinned, you've done something bad. Sometimes our box, well, we become the measuring tape. Our expectations become the wood and our pride overlays it with gold. And as long as we can keep God in that nice little box, we are happy, we feel safe, we feel secure. Well, in what areas of church life are we putting God in a box that we're pulling out whenever we want to? That's an easy question, you know, because I think everyone in this room will have an opinion about this, will have a response about this. Because when it comes to the church, oh boy, for those of us sitting right here, I get it from every angle. Everyone will want to tell me what it is that we're doing, putting God in a box. But here's the tougher question. The tougher question is this. In what areas in your life are you putting God in a box? In what areas of your life are you putting God in a box? It's easy to see what others need to be doing and others should be doing. You know, when I get people on this side of the room who come to me, there's a guy, I, he's a good friend today still. But when I applied at a power Baptist church, he would sit and tell me, hey, Rob, if you divorce, you're going to hell. And I'll be like, really? You believe that? Absolutely. Because you know what? The Bible says that what God puts together, man shouldn't separate. And the moment you separate, it means you're going against God. And if you remarry, you're going to commit adultery. He was just staunch. Guess when he became like that? Because now he's on this side. You know what changed? His son divorced. His grandson divorced. His grandson's now a pastor, for crying out loud. 
God in the box. But don't, don't think these guys aren't any different. They don't want accountability until they're hurt and all of a sudden they're on this side. Because when they're hurt and when it happens to them personally, all of a sudden they're all about the rules. In what areas of our lives are we putting God in a box? In what areas of our lives? And it's not just for the person next to you. It's, it's us, it's me, it's you. God in a box. You see, that ark is gone now. That, that actual box, no, it's not in some warehouse somewhere in America. It's not lost in some warehouse. It's, it's lost, lost. No one knows where it is. There's all these kind of conspiracies about where it might be, where it would be, where it... No, it's gone. It's lost. The old box has disappeared, but, but here's the thing. God came back in his own box. As Jesus Christ, he came. No money, no title, no army, no power. He came in his own box. He was taken captive. His body was paraded and mocked. You can save others. You can't even save yourself, they said to him. And he became Ichabod on the cross when he yelled out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your glory is gone. Your presence is not here. Where have you been? Where have you gone? He became Ichabod. And he died and was put into a box. But here's the beautiful thing. Day one, sad day, a day of darkness. Day two, mystery, what's going on? But day three, day three is the Lord's. You cannot box Jesus. You cannot keep him in that box. If you want to say he's all about grace, he's also all about rules. If you want to say he's all about rules, no, actually, he's all about grace. He keeps your head spinning. Keeps it spinning because he is God. In what areas are we as a church putting God in a box? And in what areas of your life are you putting God in a box? That's your challenge this week. Just a small one. Just a small one. As we are challenged in this time of finding again the rhythms of Jesus leading and being our King and Lord, Let's start dealing with ourselves. Let's start tackling the boxes we have in our own lives. Because freedom in Christ, as we read with the Galatians last month, is breaking down those boxes. You might not be aware of what those boxes may be, but I can assure you people around you most probably do. Have a chat with them. 
Amen. I'll ask our music team to come up. Father God, <laughs> you broke the box. And in Jesus Christ, you burst forth, conquering death. And through his blood, giving us hope, hope and salvation. Father God, as we have walked this path for many of us, many a day, what have we done to put you in a box? What boxes have we made of you, Lord, that we pull out when we want to, when it's convenient? You are bigger than any box. You are God. Help us, Lord, to break them down in Jesus' name.